I was reading uh, through a little research and I found a, this interesting survey. It was from back a few years, 2009. And uh, it talked about how over 90% of churches in the United States are less than 350 in attendance. 50% um, or so are less than 75. And uh, if you read any of the, the church literature, uh, church, uh, you know, planting literature, growth literature, and Dan can correct me if I'm wrong, um, most church experts would call, what, when you're here, I expect you to correct me if I'm wrong. I expect you to stand up and throw something at me. <laughs> I mean, that's what they do. So, you, you didn't get your rotten tomato at the door? Uh, that, that most church experts say that small is defined for a church less than 200 people. And that's considered a small church nowadays. Um, which is the majority of churches in America. Small. Half of them felt like us. But what that also tells us is that despite size, a large amount of ministry happens in our country in small churches. It has to because that's the majority of churches. Um, and small churches can have way more impact than you might think. Because size is not the most important determinant of impact. Now, it does limit a church in some, you know, maybe the facilities aren't going to be as fancy, or the number of programs, or the number of staff members. You know, you're not going to have, you know, we're, we're not going to have, you know, 13 people on staff to cater to every possible little whim of every, you know, subgroup in the church. But, those things are not the final arbiter of impact. And what we're going to see in the little church in Philadelphia this morning is that our Lord is not necessarily looking at size or influence nearly as much as he's looking for faithfulness. Now last week, we were at the church in Sardis. And you recall Sardis is sort of what happens when a church doesn't heed some of the instructions of Jesus in the first four of these seven churches. Remember, we started in Ephesus where we basically summed it up as Jesus wants his church to be firm on the truth, but in love. Truth and love together. And then we went to Smyrna where we saw how even if it hurts, we need to stand for the truth and love. In other words, if there's persecution because we're standing for the truth and love, that we, we need to still stay uh, Stay firm. And then we got to Pergamum, where we talk about holiness, and that uh, Jesus wants his church to, to pursue holiness, to live out the truth and love. Not just to talk about the truth and love, but to live it out in our lives. Which basically we boil down to if there's a conflict between what God wants and what you or what the world wants. Choose God's way. And then we got to Thyatira, where they had a little problem with false teachers. And we talked about how we need to examine every teacher and every teaching to make sure that they're aligned with the truth. Because false teachers will lead us away from pursuing holiness and from living out the truth and love to situations with very bad consequences. And so it's okay, in fact, it's encouraged to examine every teaching and to test every teaching and make sure it lines up with God's word. If you come across a teacher who does not want to be examined and cannot be questioned, 
I guess my encouragement to you is run away. Run very far away. And of course, when churches fail at all this stuff, they fail at the truth, love, and holiness, or they fall very close. They end up like Sardis, which last week we called the zombie church, right? Because Jesus says, they look like they're alive, but they're dead inside. Just like a zombie. They lack true faith, and they lack the power of God's life-giving spirit. Now, all these five churches up to this point, if you, if you think about it, it's all been kind of sad, right? I mean, kind of, kind of rough. A lot of bad stuff, a lot of potential for failure. Pretty serious issues, and which, of course, are warnings for things for us to be on the lookout. But not every church Jesus is going to speak to had problems. As we're going to find out shortly, the church at Philadelphia was a different case. I want to give you a little context, like I always do, about the original city of Brotherly Love. This isn't the same Philadelphia, you know, that the Fresh Prince comes from. Um, <laughs> Philadelphia born again. <laughs> By the time of this writing, uh, the city of Philadelphia, which is right here, notice we made our circle. Woo! Oh boy, that's it. Philadelphia, we're almost again. I gotta see the picture from Philadelphia there. Uh, was actually compared to the other cities that we have studied so far, very young. It was only about 300 years old at the time of this writing. It was founded by a guy named Attalus II, who was the son of the king of Pergamum. He had an older brother named Eumenes, who was very sickly. Now the Romans, when the king of Pergamum died, offered to help Attalus II secure his throne by removing his brother Eumenes from the picture for him. But you see, Attalus really loved his brother, who was very sick. And so the city became named Philadelphia in honor of Attalus II's great love for his brother Eumenes. Because, of course, Philadelphia, Phylos in Greek, is the idea of platonic love, and Atalphos is brother, so brotherly love. Like any church in the Roman Empire at the end of the first century, you can imagine they faced Pressure, right, from the strong Roman influences of their culture. We've talked about this in various sermons. And of course, we understand that that's not completely unlike our situation in America, or at least where we're heading, as our culture rapidly changes around us and wants us to embrace a lot of things that, that we wouldn't necessarily support. Certainly not the same level of pressure yet as the Roman Empire would have exerted on these cities, but, but we're probably headed that way. But to this church, as we're about to find out, Jesus doesn't come like he did in some of the previous ones with scary, fiery eyes and, and all this kind of stuff. He doesn't come with intense words of warning or tells them that they must repent. Instead, he just comes as the Messiah. Verse 7, chapter 3 of the book of Revelation. This shows us Jesus the Messiah. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. Now the, the key thing here in identifying how Jesus is presenting himself to this church is that phrase, key of David. Now, of course, key is a symbol, right, of control or authority. You, you got the key to something, you, you have access to it, you can 
control it. And of course, anytime you read the Bible, the New Testament, and you see David in relationship to Jesus, I hope that your, your ears kind of perk up and your Bible scholar hat goes on. Um, not that pointy hat like my wife tries to make me wear the Bible scholar hat. And you think, hmm, Jesus, David, covenant, right, with David about how there will be a descendant of David on the throne of Israel forever. And what's interesting is the words of Jesus here about the key of David actually come pretty much straight out of Isaiah 22:22, which is a prophecy about the Messiah. And I will place on his shoulder, his being the Messiah, the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. And so we understand that Jesus, of course, fulfills both prophecies of the Old Testament and the covenants of the Old Testament. Now, King David was promised a descendant on the throne for eternity. In fact, if you are in the group that's doing the, the daily, the thematic Bible reading, you would have read that chapter this past week, where David gets the covenant. Of course, Jesus then is David's descendant. He's Israel's Messiah. He's the one that this prophecy is about. And so the key and the opening and the shutting suggest to us Jesus pointing out his authority to grant permission to come into his kingdom, to decide who enters his kingdom. I'm actually reminded when I, when I think of Jesus and his key of David and the door that won't shut and that sort of thing, it makes me think back to Jesus' words in John 10, verses 7 and 9. So Jesus said again to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus is the door to eternal life. He's the door to the kingdom. He's the way truth. He's the life, right? And no one comes to the Father except through him, through believing in his finished work on our behalf of the cross and the resurrection. All these imageries here of the key and the door and the, the coming in and no one can shut and that sort of thing are designed to help us conclude to see how, how he himself is the entirety of the way of salvation. He himself is the entirety of the way to the kingdom. So he's not just the way of salvation. He's the only way. He's the only door through which we can pass into eternal life and forgiveness. So it's not just that even we shouldn't look for anything anywhere else. We literally cannot look anywhere else other than Jesus for our eternal destiny. He's the door. He's got the key. He's the one that can open never shut. He's the one that can shut and never open. It's all about him. So we think about that, this idea of eternal life, Jesus' kingdom, the key, and all, all these things, door. You'd kind of expect Jesus' next words to be something about believing in him, or walking through the door, or, or something like that. But instead, he actually goes sort of more to the faithfulness of Philadelphia, and he says this in verses 8 and 9. He says, I know your belief and faith in me. Doesn't say that, does he? I know your works. Behold, 
have a step before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but a little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. I know your works is not what I would have expected after Jesus is talking about, you know, the key and the kingdom not shutting the door or that sort of thing. But see, Jesus is about to commend them on how they have actually lived out their faith in him. Not just that they talked about it. They've actually lived out their faith. That there's a connection between their faith and how they live. There's a connection between our faith and how we live. And he tells them that even though they have a little power, right, they weren't strong in themselves. In fact, the little there, that, that word is from the word we get, the word microphone, micron, little power, dunamis, right? Little might, little, they, they didn't have, they weren't, you know, super ultra mega. They were micro. Just a little power. But they achieved something in Jesus' eyes. Even they weren't a, they weren't a mega church, they were kind of a micro church. We started a trend, is that going to be included? See, nobody, nobody wants to write and read a book, apparently, about micro churches. It's all about mega churches. Right? The majority of churches are micro churches. But Jesus is. That's a, that's, a, that's a commendation here. Because even though they, they didn't, they weren't super strong or super awesome. They had something going on because they've been faithful. Despite their micro power, they are commanded, what does he say? You've kept my word and you've kept my name. Now, whenever you see that kept in the New Testament, that's the idea of watching over something or doing what it says, right? So, for example, we use this in English all the time. If if I say, if you keep your promise, what does that mean? It means that you, you do what you promised, right? And if you don't do what you promised, what do we say? Well, you didn't keep your promise. They were faithful to what they knew of Christ's word, and they were obedient to it. They kept it. They honored his name, even though they were weak. Despite their weakness, they were determined to be faithful. So you kind of try to put this all together. You've got Christ, and you've got the key of David, right? And he holds the key, and he opens doors. And of course, he himself is the door. And so if you put all that together, the idea of the doors refers to entering into eternal life and into his kingdom. And then you put that together with the faithfulness and all this, and, and what he says here where he talks about not denying my name and people are going to have to bow down. He's just encouraging them in faithfulness to keep their reward. Their enemies who oppose them, they're going to, they're going to bow down before them. Now this is one of those things when I read that. You know, sometimes don't you wish when you read certain things in the scriptures that God had provided like little footnotes somewhere that kind of tell you like what was really going on behind the scenes there. Because what does he mean by those who call out of synagogue? I don't know what he means by that. Okay? Because he doesn't give us like he doesn't fill us in fully on the background of what's going on there. So we don't know the exact nature. So well, I don't know if this refers to some temporal reckoning, right? In their lifetimes, those people that had 
persecuted or opposed them or whatever happened, we're going to come bowing down and realize God loves them. Or if this is some sort of eternal reckoning when Jesus judges all things. I don't really know. He doesn't really give us a great idea there of which it is. Here's what I do know. Either way, the Philadelphians are promised that those who, who had caused them trouble in this life because they were faithful to God's word and faithful to Jesus' name would eventually face justice and would see who God was really pleased with. So we can be sure of one thing, and that is there is coming a day Maybe their day came in their time. Maybe it awaits to come in the future. But there's going to come a day when all the wrongs are going to be set right. And all the deeds, good and evil, are going to be repaid. And whatever injustices we face in the world will be made just. Sometimes it happens during our sojourn in this life. Which is, you know, that's awesome. But maybe, in fact, I'm going to have to probably argue most of the time. We've got a whole lot in the end to see that happen. Most of the payment for injustice isn't going to come in this life. It's going to come. I mean, rest assured, it'll happen. But I don't necessarily think it'll be in this life. But that's okay. Because there's more encouraging news. So not only... Have they been faithful to Jesus and his word, his name? And because of that, there's going to be a time when those who have harassed them, persecuted them, whatever happened there, will receive their commandments. Justice will be done. There's also blessings of faithfulness. Look at, look at the next few verses. Because you kept my word about patient endurance, I'll keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world, to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Oh, here's that word kept again. Kept my word about patient endurance. In other words, Philadelphians have been steadfast in following Jesus in the midst of whatever their persecutions and trials and other sufferings, all the things they faced. They endured when it had been much easier to give up and just get along. Because that's, I mean, isn't that true? Sometimes it's just easier, it feels like it's easier, just let's just, just give up and get along. Give up. That's all the Philadelphians did. They, they stayed true. So they're told, because of their endurance, they'd be spared from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world. And then you'll notice right after this, he says, I'm coming soon. So he's clearly talking about some sort of return of Jesus, end time sort of thing. Now, when he says this hour of trial is coming on the whole world, this those who dwell on the earth thing that he talks about here, right? It's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. The end of verse 10. Now, that is a very special phrase, to those who dwell on the earth. Because if you were to take your Bible software or your whatever, I don't know, I use software. You could use an old school concordance, whatever. When I was in seminary, we 
used to have this concordance dance project. Remember Hatch and Red Pal? Hatch and Red being lucky. Hatch and Red Pal is a concordance in the Old Testament in Hebrew. The professor would assign you to find all the places that such and such happened. It was in Hebrew. Right. Well, however you want to do it, software or whatever. This phrase occurs a total of ten times in the book of Revelation. Those who dwell on the earth, the ones who dwell on the earth. In every case, it indicates the people of the world who are opposing God. So, for example, in chapter 6, verse 10, those who dwell on the earth are referred to in contrast to the martyrs under the throne. In chapter 8, verse 13, it is those who dwell on the earth who are about to suffer God's judgment. In chapter 11, verse 10, it is those who dwell on the earth who it describes as celebrating the deaths of the two heavenly witnesses. So whenever you see this, those who dwell on the earth, in the book of Revelation, it's talking about the people who oppose God in the end times. So now without going into a long rabbit trail on end times theology, which those of you who know me really well, know that I would absolutely love to live on several weeks, uh, we can at least know from Philadelphia here that those who are faithful to Christ when the time of judgment comes are going to be spared from the wrath of God being poured out on the earth. The dwell on the earth folks connects that to the end times, and every time that's used in Revelation, it's those who oppose God who are going to be judged leading up to the return of our Lord and Savior. And so he promises that those who are faithful, who keep his word and keep it in endurance, will be saved from the wrath of God in the end. Now not only are they spared from wrath, there's other rewards he talks about here. Right? He mentions a crown. This is that same crown we saw back in chapter 2, verse 10. Okay, the Stephanos. Right? The crown, the victor crown. Greek little thing. Okay. You know, there's one other time in the scriptures that this particular crown is mentioned, and that's in James chapter 1, verse 12. It says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. So once again, that idea of this particular crown, this crown of life, in relationship to enduring or persevering. Okay, so the background of this crown, particular crown, you know, there's also the crowns that's great in the New Testament. This is one, one of the many crowns. It's related to enduring persecution. Those who endure, when we, when we endure, when we persevere, there's a special reward for us. I don't know the exact nature of that word. You know, whenever you see these crowns, okay, maybe I'm not a super ultra-literalist, but, but I mean, when I see the crowns in Scripture, I don't, I don't necessarily think it really means you're going to get a, an olive leaf thing for your head. But maybe you will. I mean, that's, if it's coming from Jesus, I don't care what he has. You know, that's fine. The idea is that there's a reward. There's some sort of reward in maturity for this. I'm, I'm not sure we know what that reward is. I'm not sure we want to. Because if we knew the exact natures of the rewards of eternity and, and how eternity is going, see, I, I, I think we're told enough to know that, that we should expect it and look forward to it, but not so much that you go out looking for it, because otherwise you might start going out and looking for persecution. 
going to stack them crowns. Right? I'm not sure Jesus wants you to start doing that. Or if you really knew how great eternity was going to be, you might be trying to find ways to get there faster. So he's not going to tell you that much. He's going to tell you enough to know heaven's awesome. Eternity's going to be great, but he's not going to give you enough to, like, you know, make you go off the deep end stuff. Now, we also know from here that when we're faithful, <coughs> we can look forward to an eternal place of honor in God's presence. Well, how do I know that? Well, he mentions being, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Well, what's a temple? It's a place where the presence of God is, right? Okay, it's a place where, where the temple is. Now, pagan temples often had pillars with carvings of the history of the deity or the stories about that particular deity on it, that sort of thing. They'd have pillars in the front, okay? So the idea here is, is permanently enjoying God's presence. If you have a pillar in a temple, the temple represents his eternal presence. It's going to be permanently there because he says, well, never shall he go out of it. And then we got all these, these names, right? He talks about the name of my God, and he's going to write my new name on you, and that sort of thing. And you remember we saw that also uh, back in one of the previous churches, that uh, receiving, uh, getting new names, or getting someone's name on you, is the idea of, of being marked for who we serve, or who has purchased us for eternity. Remember, our entrance into eternity with Jesus is purchased with the price of his blood shed for our redemption. So all these crowns and pillars and new names, it all just fits together nicely with what we know is God's goal for the plan of history, that we would be in his presence as it was from the beginning, that how it says in the end of the book of Revelation, he will be our God and we will be his people, right? That's how God originally created everything. He dwelt with Adam and Eve when he came down the garden and they hung out in the garden and, you know, ate pomegranates or whatever it was. forward to building this kingdom. And when history comes to its culmination, his kingdom is going to be filled with people who have been faithful to him, who have persevered, who are going to get to live forever in his presence in this renewed heavens and new earth. And that's the final goal of all this. It is not just fire insurance, or not just that, that there would be, you know, we be redeemed, but that we'd be redeemed towards something. Toward that's really the ultimate reward. You know, it's interesting. Most of the faithful people that I have known or know are not people who are necessarily kind of large and in charge or doing huge, massive public things for God. And I'm not saying that those people can't be faithful because obviously there's people who are faithful who very much of that. <clears throat> Most of the people I know, though, who I call faithful are, are honestly just people who day to day Seek to love the Lord their God and to love other people. That's day-to-day -day faithfulness. Loving, loving Jesus and loving people for Jesus. Persevering when there's, when there's struggles and trials. And that's what Jesus is really asking them to. That's what he's commending the Philadelphians for and encouraging us for. It's just to be faithful in the day-to-day -day things. And let him take care of everything else because he's got an eternity prepared for us when we are. And that's really just a big takeaway, right? For Philadelphia, Jesus calls his people to be faithful to him. That's what he wants. He just wants to be faithful. And he 
promises that faithfulness to him is going to be rewarded. Now, maybe not completely in this life. In fact, definitely not completely in this life. But definitely in eternity. Maybe injustice is going to reign for a season in this life. Maybe it's going to seem sometimes like faithfulness to the Lord, ah, it's just, it's getting, it's getting you nowhere. You just feel like you're, you're on a treadmill. It's just, when's, when's something going to happen? Maybe there's even going to be persecution coming. I, I don't know. There is for some of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world, for sure. Real hard persecution, life-ending life persecution. Maybe, maybe someday that's coming for us, too. I, I don't know. I can't predict the future. I don't claim to be a prophet. I just like to make one. <laughs> Took my mom a couple seconds. I know.